Hello, I am Taylor. And I am Whitney. And we are the Ghost Sisters. Boop, boop. It was like Law and Order. <laughs> dun, dun. That really was. Bum, bum. Fantastic. I get that and anytime uh, Linda Belcher goes like, bump, bump. <laughs> I get this. Yeah. Now I'm trying to think of uh, in a world of paranormal society. I don't know. We I can't sh- think of anything else. Oh, no. We <laughs> should write our own. Yeah. <laughs> In a world of paranormal activity, there are two sisters who investigate the unknown. These are their stories. Bum, bum. Dun dun! Yeah! Dun, dun. <laughs> oh my god! Y'all, uh, y'all did not see the flailing that went along with that. There, there was a lot of flailing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh huh. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. So, um, we're gonna start off with me say sorry, y'all. Um. So- <laughs> Sorry, y'all. Yeah, so I re-listened because I have the memory of a goldfish, apparently. And so I re-listened to our episodes. And when I was listening to the Mothman episode, apparently I really suck at life. And it is Point Pleasant, West Virginia, not Pleasant Point. And then I think at one point I said Point Pleasant, Pleasant Point. So sorry, y'all. It is Point Pleasant. You guys should go out there and visit and tell them that Whitney from the Ghost Sisters greatly apologizes. And so, yeah. on top of that, I also write wrote Pleasant Point in the show notes. So <laughs> Whitney's not the only one. We haven't a time, apparently. Yeah, clearly. But that aside, just everyone, I'm sure by now you guys have figured it out. We kind of suck sometimes. And then that's just how it is you know we're human brains don't always function like they should memories obviously are not always I think correct for, for us brains hardly function as they should <laughs> yeah i feel like mine there it's like a hamster wheel and that hamster is tired y'all mm-hmm. <laughs> it's just going that's legit <laughs> it reminds me of whenever i worked at PetSmart and we would be closing down and all you would hear Because, you know, it's getting dark and all the hamsters, they're nocturnal. And all of a sudden, like, it is dead silent. We've turned the music off and everything. And you just hear, as they're, like, (laughs) running on their wheels. And you're just like, God damn it. (laughs) Good morning. (laughs) They're like, it's time to do things. People are gone. Because during the day, people would walk up and they would be like, is there even a hamster in there? And I'm like, yeah. They are nocturnal. If you are upset, you should not get one because clearly they like to burrow Mm -hmm. and they are not visible during the day. Right. And they will piss you the fuck off at nighttime. Yeah. It's like hermit crabs. If you guys, yeah, if you guys have hamsters, I'm sure they're super duper adorable. Way to go. Proud of you. Mm Mm-hmm. So anyways, Taylor did research, and I don't know what it's about, but I know it's going to be a two-parter. It's going to be a two-parter, and it's only a two-parter because I said, hey, I have 16 pages of research, and that was with cutting a section, and Whitney was like, 
are you sure you shouldn't do two parts? And I was like, hmm, that didn't even occur to me. So it's two there's, parts. There's no shame in two-parting no. it up. No, because a otherwise we'd be here. I mean, otherwise we'd be here for like two and a half hours. Yeah, I don't. I think that's great. And I love spending time with you. But no. <laughs> Just no. <laughs> no. Well, then should we get going? Yeah, I think we've pissed everyone off already. So okay. Let's go. So you kind of stole my thunder by telling a story at the beginning of your thing because I planned on doing that. And now it seems like I'm copying you. I'm not copying you. Oh. Yes. Yeah, you are. Thing. You definitely. I am not. I had this all planned out. Afterwards. So, no. okay. Okay. So Do I need to close my eyes. No, you don't have to. Great. I wasn't going to. So it was a sunny Thursday in August in 1966 when. Whoa. Whoa. Yes. Mine was also in 1966. It was. Are you doing the Mothman? No. What bitch did you not listen? I'm on a whole other. It was 19. I'm on a different. 1966 (laughs) to 1967. Did you miss the entire episode? No, I guess I just. I forgot the dates. I guess, but okay. It's a Thursday, very sunny Thursday in August 1966, and the Pritchard family, Jean, 40 years old, Joe. Their son, Philip, 15, and their daughter, Diane, 12. Everybody's gone out on vacation except for Philip. They decided that they wanted to go out on holiday to Devon. Philip decided he wanted to stay behind because family time, you know, at the age of 15 is kind of meh. Jean said, that's great. I'm not going to let you stay here by yourself. So my mom's going to come watch you. So Sarah Scholes, 70, decides she's going to stay at the house and watch Philip. And Philip goes out into the garden to read a book. Sarah is sitting in on the settee in the lounge and she's knitting a cardigan. What's a what's a settee? Settee's like a couch. It's what they call it. Is it like one of the fainting couches? That's a chaise lounge. Oh yeah. Yes. I want one of those. I know you do. <laughs> one of these days we'll get you a velvet purple chaise lounge. And then <clears throat> I can put my Mothman Squishmallow on it. Yeah. <laughs> She noted that it was kind of surprising that Philip was comfortable in the garden because she thought that the room was like really chilly. I tried to look up in August what the temperature would have been in this area. And it seems like they may on have on average been in the 70s or something. So for somebody 70 years old, yeah, that's probably a little chilly. So at 1130 in the morning, a gust of wind startles Sarah out of her knitting and she notices that the windows are rattling and the back door is kind of jiggling in its door frame. Philip comes inside and Sarah asks if the wind kicked up and Philip says, no, it's actually pretty calm outside. And he went in to make a cup of coffee for himself and some tea for his grandmother. And sorry, y'all I sneezed. I <laughs> muted myself so that I could sneeze and Taylor didn't. I can't not say bless you. So when he comes back into the lounge with a cup of tea for Sarah and a cup of coffee for himself, he notices that there's a fine white powder that is floating down in the room and it's covering the entire room. And Sarah had been so into her knitting. And for those of us who have done yarn crafts, knitting and crocheting, you can get very into what you're doing. 
She hadn't noticed that this was happening. She thinks that Philip is pranking her and she asks him, what have you been up to? And he says that it's, it wasn't him. He's been in the kitchen the whole time. So why, you know, there's no way that he was doing anything. So she figures it's coming from the ceiling and the powder is disintegrating white wash from the recent repapering of the ceiling. So basically the glue that's holding it on there is starting to dissolve and fall down or starting to disintegrate. Mm. Philip notes that the powder is actually starting at a level below is his head. So it's actually starting at like chest high for him, but because Sarah is sitting down, it appears to be coming from much higher. And Sarah stands up to try to figure out what is going on. And she notices, yeah, it is actually below the line of sight. So it's clear up above, but it's powdered below. They're not really alarmed. They're just kind of baffled about what this could possibly be about. And so Sarah goes to get her other daughter, who happens to live across the street, Mary Kelly, or Marie Kelly, sorry. And she is covered in powder. She's got this white dust all over her. And so Marie is like, yeah, I'll, I'll come over and take a look at what you're talking about. So there's no real explanation that they're able to find when they get back over. So they say, we might as well start cleaning up. And by the time that they're cleaning up, all of the furniture and even Sarah's cup of tea has a thin white film on it. So Marie goes to the kitchen to get supplies to clean this up. And she slips on a pool of water that's formed on the kitchen floor. And this pool of water has a very neat outline. There's no splash marks or anything like that. It's like somebody poured water directly on the floor and made sure that it stayed nice and neat. Marie asks Sarah, has there been an accident because there's a kitchen flood? And Sarah says, no, there's nothing's gone on. I don't know what you're talking about. And so they mop up the water. But as she's mopping up the water, another pool appears out of nowhere. So she mops that one up. Another one appears right after that. So they start to think maybe the water's coming from underneath the linoleum of the kitchen. So they pull back. So is it like there's a spot here and then like a foot away there's another spot? Yes. Or is it like they mop up one and it just like reforms in the same spot? No, it's there's one appears here. They mop it up and another one appears a foot away. Okay. Yes. So they decide that they're going to pull up a corner of the linoleum to see what's going on because the wood underneath would be soaked if this is coming from underneath and it's completely dry. So they're like, we don't understand what's happening here. That makes no sense to us. So they also notice throughout the day that there's a green foam. The green foam comes out of the faucets when they're turned on and it comes out of the toilet whenever the toilet's flushed. Sounds like they should get their septic system checked. Yes. So at okay. this point, nobody's really concerned about what's happening, but they're kind of like, we can't explain anything that's going on. It's just really weird. We don't get it. Enid Pritchard, who is married to Joe's brother. There's a lot of names in this, just to warn you. Yeah. So far, I've just decided older woman, young woman, <laughs> man. Fair. She hears all the commotion going on and she comes over to see if she can assist and turns off the water supply and under the sink, but everything, the puddles just keep appearing. Mar uh, Marie ends up calling the water board and she says there's an issue with the house and that they'd send, they said that they would send somebody out. But when they get there, 
the powder at this point has stopped falling and the pools of water are still appearing. The guy that they send out confirms that the floor beneath the linoleum is dry. He looks at the Mm -hmm. drains, make sure there's no cracks in the pipes. He concluded that there was some kind of condensation occurring due to the clammy weather. And Sarah was like, that doesn't make any sense because it's actually been really dry. So why would there, there's no clammy weather to speak of. The guy says, I can't really help you. I'm going to report what's going on to my superiors. Maybe they can figure it out. (laughs) Not my problem. Yeah. At this point, the rest of the day is pretty chill. At 7 p.m., Sarah's watching TV and Philip goes into the kitchen and she hears him call from the kitchen. Grandma, it's happening again. On the counter, when she goes in there, the counter on the kitchen sink side was covered with sugar and tea leaves. And in front of their eyes, the button on the dispenser for the tea leaves gets depressed and released. And so that more tea falls out. And it continues to do this over and over until eventually the dispenser is empty and tea leaves are all over the counter. But then it continues to depress even after that. So they just stood there and watched it. And watched Yes, they sit there and watch this happen because they have no idea what's going on. They're just watching this thing in complete astonishment. And Sarah eventually tells whatever is doing this to stop, but Philip thinks that she's yelling at him. And so he (laughs) says, I can't, it's doing it on its own. Grandma, you're crazy. Yes. All of a sudden they hear a crash in the hallway and Sarah was like, oh my gosh, we have an intruder. So she goes to the door and she yanks it open. There's nobody there. Just to put some context here, there's a door between the kitchen and the lounge area. It's She closed that door when she came in. Okay. I'm picturing the house from Clue, so just... No, much, much smaller than that. Much smaller. Okay. It's still, that's what it is in my brain right now. Okay. So when she notices there's nothing there, the hall lights turn on with a click on their own, and they both jump. And they go down the corridor to the foot of the stairs... The crash that they had heard was a plant had actually pulled itself out of its pot and was sitting up at the top of the stairs and the pot was at the bottom of the stairs. The thing that was weird with this was that the plant normally lives at the base of the stairs. So how did the plant get all the way up the stairs like that? It's a jumping plant. (laughs) Mexican jumping beans. Mexican jumping beans. Just as she notices this plant there's a crash in the kitchen so she runs back to the kitchen both of them run back to the kitchen there is a crockery cupboard so crockery like pots and pans and stuff it's shaking i'm I'm definitely calling it a crockery cupboard now yeah like (laughs) i'm gonna even like at school i'll be like can you go get a pot or a pan from the crockery uh bar because it's all hanging up on a bar the crockery bar yes crockery Crockery, not cockery. No, crockery. That's, yes. a, that's a different kind of bar. Oh, oh. Pickles. <laughs> Pickles. So she assumed that perhaps there was a neighbor doing some kind of carpentry on the other side of the wall, but she's starting to kind of get a little weirded out by this. Whoa, 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 whoa. This lady is like, hey, my plant jumped up the stairs. I think someone like nailed something next door. That's, yes. that's definitely what happened. Yes. Like, basically, Sarah is like, I'm going to go get Marie again. And Philip's like, I'm coming with you because he doesn't want to be in the house alone <laughs> at this point. So 
by the time they come back, the cupboard's still shaking. And they realize that the cupboard's actually on the end wall of the house, not the adjoining wall between that and the house next door. So there's no way it could have been construction. So mm-hmm. Sarah goes next door to their neighbor, May Mountain, to ask if they've been making any banging noises. And she said that she thought it was them. So by the time they get back, the event has stopped and they drink tea until about 9.30. What? They... So did they just like scoop it off of the counter to make their tea? I'm sure that they had tea on reserve. Like they cleaned that up and then made their own new tea. Oh, okay. I just don't want to waste any. (laughs) Scoop it up. Let's go. I don't know why I'm British. Are they British? Is this in the UK? Yes, actually. Is this the thing? It is. Hey! (laughs) At 9.30 p.m., she goes to kiss Philip goodnight, but she he is staring over her shoulder into the room behind her. And behind her, a very heavy wardrobe is swaying back and forth like a drunken man. And that's what they claimed it said. It said, like a drunken man, I quote. These are the events that started one of the most terrifying poltergeist hauntings in the entirety of the UK, but also possibly in the world. This is 30 East Drive, Pontefract, Yorkshire, England, also known as the Black Monk House. Okay. I feel like I have heard the Black Monk House, but I know nothing about it. Yeah. So the Black Monk House is kind of crazy. And this is the first documented what they think is the first documented events of the black monk house but really it comes down to a very very long history of things that occurred we start in the formation of the town pontefract which is in the 12th century i got a lot of this information from a couple different books and of course the pontefract civic society town history The other books I did, The Black Monk of Pontefract, The World's Most Violent and Relentless Poltergeist by Roderick Estep or Estep and Bill Bungay, and then Poltergeist, A Study in Destructive Hauntings by Colin Wilson. So I wanted to shout out those books and sources. So starting in, yeah, starting in the 12th century, Pontefract is formed through the merging of two villages. And Pontefract actually means broken bridge. But they're not sure where this broken bridge actually is located. The nearest bridge is two miles away and it's over the River Air, and it's not broken. So they're like, we don't know why they called it Broken Bridge. But this was built on the site of an earlier Saxon fort that was commissioned by the Norman Baron Ilbert de Lacy who arrived with William the Conqueror in the 1066 conquest of the area. So 1066. He was granted the lordship of Pontefract as well as 150 other estates in Yorkshire. And he basically commissioned Pontefract Castle. And Pontefract Castle ruled over Leeds, Bradford, and most of the land towards Huddersfield, which I know neither of us are English. We have no context of what any of that is. But but way to go, the bro. castle maybe the castle Pontefract is was a, basically thought of as one of the most unassailable and unconquerable castles at the time. So this was a big thing, and the 
Pontifractic Society said that Pontifract was actually the fourth biggest and most meaningful town in Yorkshire during the time period that it was at its height. By 1099, Robert de Lacey, who was the second baron of Pontefract, founded a Cluniac monastery that was dedicated to St. John the Evangelist. And this thing existed until the dissolution of monasteries in the time of King Henry VIII. So the legend is, and this is why the Black Monk House gets its name, a monk supposedly was hung during the time of King Henry VIII for raping and killing young girls. And supposedly he was throwing them down the well to dispose of their bodies that happens to be inside of the house. It kind of, the bridging wall between 30 East Drive and 79 East Drive actually span this well. So this house, the two, the duplex was the old castle? No, the duplex no, was okay. actually built on the grounds of the well that he was supposedly disposing the bodies on and the site of his execution. Wow. Yeah, so he was hanged for his crimes. But that being said, I did not find anything actually about this. I looked huh. and looked and looked. There's no historic documentation to it at all. Um, I was going to say, and, you know, King Henry VIII. Um, yeah. Can't think of a better man, honestly. <laughs> right. So actually, Just kidding, y'all. <laughs> King Henry VIII uh, dissolved the monasteries and accused the nuns and monks of vicious and carnal sin. Um, uh-huh. No mention of a monk being hanged or anything else. And actually, yes. Vicious and carnal sin. Yes. So R- really, sir back up my understanding is that he really just wanted to get control of the church and so he was looking for any reason to do so and he could divorce and kill his wives like you know there's a what a great guy yeah he really is he really is so according to history the clean the cluniac monks in or cluniac monks i'm sure i'm saying that wrong please correct me if i'm saying that wrong you guys they had more of a, what did they call it? A virtue in violence than a virtual in contemplation. They apparently, that was how they were described, was that they, they did a little bit more violent things than actually what we think of as monks today. So there may be something to it, but there's no actual historical documentation. And I'll get into, I think in part two, what they actually think about this monk thing. So eventually Pontefract passes into royal ownership and the castle is visited by kings and queens and it became a prison for a long time uh, during the War of Roses and the Civil War that occurred in England. So some of the most important prisoners held there were King Richard II. He's the most famous prisoner. His death was announced in February of 1400, but no one really knows how he died. They think that he was either starved to death by his captors or he went on hunger strike and starved himself to death. But there's no real documentation as to how he died. There's also the Dukes of Orleans and Bourbon. They were held for 30 years at Pontefract Castle and then James I of Scotland. Are you laughing at Bourbon? No, I was laughing at Dukes of whatever because I thought the next word was going to be hazard. 
Oh no, <laughs> Dukes of Orleans. <laughs> I was like, the Dukes of Hazard. What? So we already have a lot going on as far as we've got the monk uh, presence, which means that we've got a big religious aspect to it. The shutting down of that and the takeover by King Henry VIII. We've got death on the grounds due to the prisoners dying. And on top of that, we have three different sieges that occurred of Pontefract during the Wars of the Roses and the Civil War. So the first siege was Christmas Day 1644 through March 1st, 1645. The second siege was March 28th, 1645 through July 1645. And then the third siege was June 3rd, 1648 through January 30th, 1649. And this was the point at which Charles I was executed and he named Charles II as the rightful king. So Pontefract was very much a, what do I want to say? They were on the royalist side of the civil war. So their mm-hmm. motto became post-mortem patris pro filio, which means after the death of the father, we are for the son. So basically they were like, yes, we recognize Charles II as the rightful king. Eventually, after all the bloodshed and after the Civil War calms down, they basically start to see Pontefract Castle as kind of a, you know, it's just kind of fallen into disrepair and it kind of has a bad reputation at this point for being, you know, it's gone through all the siege and it's just not very good. So they decide that they're going to demolish it. Hmm. This is when... Pontefract begins to rebuild itself and they start to look at, well, we no longer have the castle. So that can't really be a means of income or tourism or anything like that. So they look at the licorice industry and they first begin to use it as a medicinal plant. And then in the 17th century, we see the first candied licorice become a thing, which licorice is not candy. That's nasty. I will choose anything else. I will drink Robitussin before I eat licorice. Like, no. Uh, I I won't (laughs) do either. I don't. I mm -mm. Yeah. The licorice industry was at its peak in the 1930s, but then once chocolate became popular, it started to decline. So. Damn right. Another thing that happened during their rebuilding and repairing era was in 1872, it's thought that Pontefract was the first place that democracy actually pops up. As a matter of oh, fact, cool. the website, yeah, the website was like, the whole world can thank Pontefract for democracy. And I was like, uh, not sure. wait, wait. so well. yeah. So fast forward, everything's pretty chill up until about the 1950s. We start to form the Checkerfield Estates and the Checkerfield Estates were a post-war council estate in Europe. And it's once the it was where the gallows that were associated with Pontefract Castle were once housed. So this is where all mm. of the people were hanged and, you know, all that stuff. The last houses that were built in this series of estates were 79 Checkerfield and 30 East Drive. And this was possibly done to chronological order but it also could have been done due to the fact that there was a big ass well on the property. This was supposed to have been belonging to the monastery, which is where that the monk threw the woman, the girls in the well thing, 
or it also said that it could have been an orchard owner that actually owned this. There's a couple things. Two but very, very different, different stories. Stories. Yes. Like so, the barrier horrible wall, murderer, orchard farmer. Like what? exactly. Yes. Okay. So the barrier wall that is between 79 Checkerfield and 30 S East Drive is bridging that well. And that well has since been boarded up and you can't actually access it anymore. This leads us to the actual first hauntings of 30 East Drive. This starts with a family known as the Farrars. And they are, or Farrars, I think it's Farrars. It's spelled F-A-R-R-A-R-S. Um, they really weren't publicized as far as this being the first thing for the Pritchards are the most famous haunting case when it comes to the Black Monk house. So Leander mm-hmm. William Farrar, also he liked to go by Bill and his wife, Barbara get married in 1950 after Bill was demobbed by the armor army in 1947. Basically the war was over. So they decided to, to demobilize that's what demob means because oh okay i, I was made like, the same the base fuck? <laughs> yes i was like the hell does demobbed mean i had to look it up there's several terms in here that i had to look up because he just left the army he doesn't really have a job they really couldn't afford to buy a house so they're waiting for a council house to open up and they're hoping that one of these checkerfield estates will be one of one that they can get They are allowed to get a council house when they have proof of marriage, proof of employment, and a steady income. And they are able to get this, and they are able to move into 30 East Drive during September of 1954. And almost immediately, they start having issues. Bill is working on decorating and making the house their own, and they're both really excited about this. He starts to run into issues with the cabinets that he's put up on the wall. He's made sure that they're square up on the wall. The crockery. The crockery cupboard. He makes sure that they're square on the wall and then says the next day that he's going to go and actually put the doors on them. But when he comes back the next day, all of the cabinets are askew. So they're no longer at 90 degrees. Now they're off a bit. So he can't fit the doors on them anymore. He noticed that the house was extremely cold even though they had a heating system, they had really hard time getting hot water. They would have councilmen out to fix the problem, but they could never figure out what was wrong. So there was nothing ever to fix. Bill would start putting up wallpaper. And the second that he would finish like gluing down a strip, the other strip that he had just glued down would fold back up and flutter down to the floor. Could it just be he's really bad (laughs) at like renovation? No, this man was a very handy man. He, like... I'm just thinking about how the cabinets would somehow all of a sudden be askew. Like, that's not... Unless the wall itself was like, Ugh. Like, it, they don't... It can't... Once you learn about some of the things that the entities at the Black Monk House can do, it might make a little more sense. Turn walls into rubber? I mean, it can do You're some You're rubber real- and I'm glue? oh my god so (laughs) no it can do some really weird stuff though so he tried every different brand of wall plate paper glue that he could find and he could not get it to work so maybe the ghosts just were like that's a really ugly thing wallpaper wallpaper." right he's like if i'm gonna live here too paint an accent wall and move on with your life bro (laughs) bro so 
Nancy, Barbara's mom at one point, offers to babysit their new baby Jane to give the couple a a night off so that they can go and do, you know, married couple things. And I just want to say, like, I don't know why, but I had never thought about the name Jane. And it is such a beautiful, cute name. It's a cute name. And then you said baby Jane and I was like, oh, Oh, that's so cute. Are are you going to name your child Jane now? (laughs) I don't know. I'll put it on the list. (laughs) Bitch, I might. (laughs) I have one other name on my list. Oh? I'm not telling. Oh, okay. You you pulled up your phone like you were going to tell me. So, no. So I can go ahead and input this one because oh. I have the memory of a goldfish and will forget. Yeah, that's fair. Okay. So, when they get back from their married couple shenanigans, they notice that baby Jane is very upset. And Nancy demands to be taken home immediately. And she, they're like... It's a baby. Like, why are you being this way? And something happened to Jane and Barbara or Jane and Nancy that Nancy will never talk about. She never spoke of it after that. They just took her home and that was the end of it. Well, that's rude. Yes. Jane would have to be held every single night because she would cry all the time in the house. But the second that they took her to Barbara's parents' house, she'd stop crying and she'd sleep like a baby. And so, Barbara's parents' house is not the shared correct house, right? It's, it's like across the street or something? No, this is a different area. Like, they live oh, in a different Oh, completely. Town. It's not even near there. Okay. Right. They had Jane looked at by the local doctor. His name was Dr. Young. And when he walked into the house, what? I just, yep, looks like a baby. <laughs> right. It's crying. Yeah, it's doing crying. baby things. Like, I don't, I don't know. You know. <laughs> so he remarks whenever he walks into the house, it's like walking into a barn coming into this house. And that, I assume he meant it a certain way. To me, that makes it seem like it was a pigsty, but he meant it more as a, like the energy was chaotic. So, oh, see, to me, that means like really stuffy and stale and maybe, yeah, dusty. Yeah. I don't know. So, the weird thing is that Dr. Young was normally very proper, very tight lipped. So, he wouldn't say something like that. He would kind of keep his opinion to himself and just do his job and then move on. So, what did he walk in? And he was like, it's a pig in here. Fuck. Like, yeah. And she then, like, said that moved on or what? Yeah. She said that he walked in and said, it's like walking into a barn coming into this house and then was like, Sorry, I should go up and do my job. It was maybe a- he was just having a day. Maybe. Like, not everyone can be put together all the time. I would know. I would know too. <laughs> <laughs> I gave, I started the wrong lecture one day, y'all. Like it was rough. So. And by one day, she means this week. Like, yeah, it was not this in the week. past. <laughs> it was not in the week. past, past, the present past. Yeah. Okay, so. Over time, Barbara would become more and more unsettled and withdrawn the more that she stayed in the house. She started taking Jane to her mother's more and more often, and she would stay out and find excuses for staying out of the house. Like, she just did not like being in the house. Hmm. Jane, at one point, starts to get scratches and blood marks on her. So they're worried that she's scratching herself in her sleep because babies do that. Mm -hmm. So they put mittens on her hands, but the scratches keep appearing. So they're like, okay, that's really strange. Jillian, there is their second child or it's either Gillian. It's G I L L I A N. Uh, He was conceived at 
30 East Drive. And before Jane had not been conceived at 30 East Drive. So what's interesting, the difference between these two pregnancies. Oh, my God, Whitney. (laughs) I'm just saying she got demon baby. Okay, so she like kind of she was sick all the time in that pregnancy to the point that the pregnancy was at risk. And Dr. Young would send his employees to check on Barbara because he refused to set foot in the house ever again. Well, yeah, it's a barn. Yeah, he was like, I'm going in there. Jillian was happy and healthy and all that stuff. But Sarah did have, or not Sarah, Barbara had a really hard time with that pregnancy. So some other strange things that Barbara and Bill note throughout their living at the house is strange noises. There were voices in rooms where there was no one inside of it. The coal house, which is where I guess they stored the wood for the furnace and that kind of thing. It's like a storage room. Mm -hmm. Had a strange and intimidating feeling. Milk would spill out of bottles, like with the nipple on it. It would spill out of bottles. Rips and tears would appear on the settee without cause. The side gate kept opening despite them putting bricks in place to keep it shut. Nothing grew in the back garden. And to this day... There's the back garden is still barren. They can't get anything to grow there. They tried flowers. They tried vegetables. Huh. They tried, you know, non-flowering plants. They tried everything they could do and it will not Cactuses grow. or yep. something. They tried. Have all. they like done an analysis of the soil? I don't know. I, I would be fascinated to see what that looked like though. Cause yeah, still... just to like even be like, this is from two feet away and this is from the backyard. Like, right. Just yeah. to see what the difference is. It'd be so what that means is that Ooh. I have a soil analysis kit up at Fuck. the lab. So you and I need to go. And well, okay. you may not want to go after you hear the things that have happened here. <laughs> so um, I'm I'm a little I'm just, ongoing. I'm just thinking I stayed at the LaSalle with a fucking bear. So I think I may be okay. Okay. We'll see. Okay. I, I'm I'm still a little bit of a pussy when it comes to that. So. Yeah, um, nope, I know. Yeah. So the little bedroom that was in the house felt off. It was very dark. It was gloomy. This was originally going to be Jane's nursery, but they just did not like the feeling so much that they just put her in their room with them instead. So fair. Um, Barbara at one point went upstairs to find a pillow over Jane's face as she when she was a baby. And oh, so, no. yes. On happenstance one day, Barbara happens to run into Jean Pritchard in the Sur or the Kerr. It's a ring of shops in the center of the community. Now, Jean Pritchard is the one that moves in later. She, so that's actually where this is happening. They have a polite conversation about the mutual unhappiness with their units. Barbara is unhappy with her unit because of all the weird shit that's going on. Jean is unhappy with her unit because it's small and apparently there was a ghost girl at 47 Checkerfield uh, Road. They're both unhappy with their with their current units and so they decide to swap and Barbara was the one that was like, we should swap! And Jean was like, shit, yeah, your apartment's bigger and I've got a growing family. Yes, we should definitely swap. That would be a lot of fun. And at no point was she like, okay, yeah, it is bigger, But you can't redecorate because they don't (laughs) like wallpaper, okay? They do manage to put up some wallpaper eventually. With what, staples? I have no idea. Maybe they got better glue or maybe they put up wallpaper that the ghost liked. The ghosts approved of. Yeah. 
maybe it's the wallpaper that like you know how sometimes it's textured mm-hmm. and so like you can run your finger on it and it's like like it makes a weird noise maybe they yeah. were like i need one that doesn't make noise so my ghosty fingers can touch it maybe i don't know maybe so that brings us to the Pritchards where we started in 1966, that Thursday in August, nice and sunny and warm. We're going to jump back to where she has kissed Philip goodnight. He is looking over her shoulder. The wardrobe is swaying back and forth like crazy. Mm-hmm. They decide they're going to go spend the night at Marie's house because they ain't about that. Fair. When they go in there, the, Marie explains to Vic, her husband, everything that's been happening and Vic is like (laughs) no at this point Sarah and Philip have gone to bed and Vic and Marie are like we should call the police something really weird is going on here we should call the police on their behalf and have them come check out the house because Sarah and Philip didn't want to do this what did they think was gonna happen like calling the police like There's an invisible man that wants tea. Well, they think maybe there could be an intruder or a logical explanation for it. And they, so they just want somebody quote unquote unbiased to go over and take a look. Somebody official. Okay. Inspector Taylor and two of his uniformed constables arrive and the five of them go over. So Vic Marie, Inspector Taylor and his two constables. Nothing is amiss. Like everything is in its place. The wardrobe isn't doing things. There's no anything going on. Vic mm-hmm. suggests that a man named Mr. O'Donnell take a look because Mr. O'Donnell has an interest in ghosts. And Mr. O'Donnell is like, fuck yeah, let's go. They go over without hesitation. It's just Vic, Marie, and Mr. O'Donnell at this point. They say going into the unit was like going into a refrigerator. It was so cold in there. Nothing happens for the night and they're about to leave and they state we're about to leave when two oil paintings suddenly smash to the floor. One of these paintings Mm. was a wedding photo of Jean and Joe and it looked like it had been slashed twice with a sharp knife. The next day, Joe and Jean return and they, Sarah and Philip tell Joe everything that happened, Joe and Jean. And Joe is asking, what kind of knocks were you hearing when all of a sudden three very distinct bangs that rattled the windows sounded in the house and a cold wind rushes past them? Almost to answer him, like these kinds of knocks. This was the end of the first events of the hauntings of the Pritchards. They really don't Mm. have anything happen for about two more years. All of a sudden, Sarah starts to hear the noises again. And she tells Jean, I'm hearing the noises. And Jean says, I don't hear them. I don't know what you're talking about. One occasion, Sarah asks Jean if she heard something. Jean says no and walks out into the hall just to investigate, to kind of placate Sarah. And at the foot of the stairs, the counterpane, which is also a bedspread from her bed. Yeah, I was like, why a counterpane? It's a British thing. See, I would have thought that was a window. I would have, I thought it was like a portion of like the headboard or something. So Hmm. I don't know. Okay. That from was taken off of her bed and was laying at the foot of the stairs. So she put it back and went back to decorating her daughter Diane's room. Okay. Oh, they hear another crash a little bit later. And this time Philip's bedspread is laying on the foot of the stairs and a bunch of the plant pots had been upended. And that was what that crash was. So Sarah in tears says, I told you it's starting again. So this ghost is just going from room to room, pulling sheets off of beds. 
basically, yes. And, and up eating him down pots. the hallway. Yeah. <laughs> yeet, yeet. <laughs> Jean is unable to sleep that night, and she decides she's going to go kind of wander out in the halls until she gets tired. And she notices that the hall is extremely cold. And okay. she looks down the hall, and she can see something around the the landing that's kind of swaying back and forth in the dark. So she turns a light on to see what it is. And just as she does so, something flies past her face, like within inches of her face. It turns out to be a paintbrush because she had been painting Diane's room earlier and they had just left the buckets and the brushes on the landing. Then right after that, a bucket of paste from the wallpaper is thrown at her and it hits the opposite wall of the landing and the stuff goes everywhere. Mm. When she actually, you know, gets herself back together from that and looks at what she originally was trying to see, it turns out that there was a long piece of wallpaper that was still attached to the roll that was swaying back and forth like a cobra. And eventually she makes a grab for it and it falls to the floor. She, at this point, is terrified and she doesn't quite know how to react to it. The carpet sweeper, which I'm assuming is a vacuum cleaner, starts to swing up in the air like a club, like a giant's club. And Jean drops to all fours and starts scrambling back towards her bedroom. When she gets there, she slams the door shut and she starts screaming, which wakes Joe and the kids up. So Joe kind of pulls her off to see, you know, hey, are you okay? And Philip and Diane both come into the room to see what's going on with their mother. And they find that paintbrushes are being lobbed at them, at Philip and Diane now. The whatever's been doing this moves into Diane's bedroom. The wooden palmet, which is the wooden plank that conceals curtain fittings and stuff like that, the top of a window, okay. that gets ripped mm -hmm. off the window. It was held in by two-inch screws. And Joe basically seizes and slams the door and he tells them they're not allowed to go back in there. And so Diane sleeps in her parents' room because he won't let her go back into that room. Fair. This continues for about nine months. They kind of get into a routine with it. Jean is starting to learn how to live with it because she, of course, is home the majority of the time with it. She names the ghost Mr. Nobody and then eventually starts calling him Fred, which kills me because I just think of Stephanie and how we just kind of arbitrarily named her Stephanie. Yeah. So one of these days we will find out what her name is. Maybe. I feel like the only way to find out would be a Ouija board. Yeah, I'm not doing that. So I guess no. you're not going to find out. No, we can do if she wants to communicate through the spirit box, she can tell us that. Sure. Sure. So they believe that this entity was mostly interested in Diane because as long as Diane was at school, it was quiet in the house. But the second that she would get home, the bangs would start, ornaments would levitate and fly across the room, the lights would start turning on and off, even those switches would be off. Joe eventually got so sick of this, so it was physically turning the light switches. So Joe went and taped the light switch to the on position to stop it from turning it on and off. And he walks out of the room and the lights turn back off and he goes to check and the tape is no longer there. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Okay, bro. It ripped a thing off of the window with two inch screws and you think a little thing tape. of like duct tape yeah. is going to stop it? Yeah. Bro, come on. So 
the longer that this goes on, they're telling Vic and Marie about this constantly. And Vic finally says, I think you guys need to have an exorcism because this is really weird. And he goes and contacts the vicar, Reverend Davy. Davy comes and talks to them and says, look, I like, I have to get permission from the bishop and I'll call you guys around 7 p.m. this Thursday and we can talk about it. So they're all sitting there and they have sandwiches and tea and Vic and Marie are over and they're waiting for something to happen while the reverend is there. Mm -hmm. Nothing happens for a good half hour and the vicar was about to go and Jean says, I'm so sorry we've dragged you all the way here for nothing. And the second she says that, the thumps start and a small brass candlestick jumps off the mantelpiece. And Reverend Davy's like, well, there's your problem. You've got subsidence. And Joe is flat out like, it's not subsidence. Subsidence means the sinking of the house. And so he basically is saying that the mantle is uneven and your house sank a little bit, which caused the candle to fall off. Now, that also would make sense for the cupboards being askew. Being askew. Yeah. But... Just saying. As though the spirit hears him say this, it lifts up a candlestick and then throws it. So Joe and Jean are like, <laughs> Bitch, is that try subsidence? Me. Yeah, exactly. And we'll try find me. as we go through the, the Black Monk House haunting that this entity is very, when somebody suggests that it might do something or if it somebody says poltergeist kind of do this, it will start to do that. So it likes to take the suggestions. <laughs> it's like, oh, oh, yes. goody, something new. Yes. Which makes me wonder, sorry to go off on a new tangent, because like these ghosts are old. I mean, obviously, if we're thinking this is a, a monk from, you know, King Henry VIII's era. Yeah. Um, and now we're in the 60s and like he's like, oh, my God, there's fucking a light switch. Like, what the fuck? It makes sense that he would play with that. But then sure. it makes me think, like, what happens like with cell phones and stuff? Is he like, can I try to play an app? I mean, <laughs> you know. It's like the a little face kid. You have apps on your phone. <laughs> yes, that's my friend's kid when I was over there. He was like, oh, my God, Miss Whitney has apps. And I was like, it's okay, kid. It'll be okay. <laughs> but it makes me wonder, like, do they, especially like intelligent ones, if they're like, I just want to know what you're doing. I just mm -hmm. want to know what else going on in my new world. I just want to be a part of your life. <laughs> part of your world yep yep at the same time that these candle crashes are happening they hear a loud crash come in from the lounge and they go to see what it is all of the cups and the saucers and the plates have dropped to the floor and they are scattered around the weird thing is not a single one is broken or even cracked so he's like fuck you but i'm sorry yes Reverend Davy agrees that the house is definitely haunted by something evil. And he says, wow. you really shouldn't do an exorcism. You should just move. And Jean uh, says, thanks. Yeah. Thank you. Jean says, fuck no, I'm not going to be driven out of my house by a ghost. And Reverend Davy starts to warn that that might cause property to damage. I'm sorry, damage to property and to people. And on that warning, he leaves. Well, then... Do an exorcism. <laughs> Do what I asked. Yes. So as everybody begins, so this is the first instance at which, or I guess probably the second instance, at which the entity sees this as a challenge 
And the entity wants to prove, I guess, to the family that he really isn't out to do any kind of physical harm. So everybody starts to go to bed. And <laughs> the ghost is like, whoa, 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 whoa. Everybody starts to go to bed. Diane is stopped halfway up the stairs when the lights go out. A large piece of oak furniture is levitated and moved towards her, which forces her to back down the stairs. Eventually, she ends up with the sewing machine and the furniture, so this was like a sewing table kind of thing, sitting on top of her. And the weird thing is, is that it's pinning her down, but the full weight of the furniture is not on her, so it's not actually hurting her. But Jean and Philip see this, and they run to start trying to tug it off of her, and they can't get it to budge. So... At one point, she, Diane is whimpering and she's panicking because she's scared because of course she is. And eventually Philip tells G or Diane to relax and just kind of take a deep breath. Just relax. You'll be okay. The second she does that, the furniture moves off of her. So they believe mm. that this is an instance where the entity is like, I can hurt you, but I'm choosing not to. And just kind of showing I'm not really that bad of a guy kind of thing. Why did he have to do it with a sewing table? I know. Like, you I, couldn't have found like, I don't know, something smaller. <laughs> I, don't know. I don't know. I don't. Yeah. Like one of those, like just throw something near her and miss. Like, I feel like that's yeah. enough. Yeah. You don't and that happens a down. lot. That happens uh, yeah. a lot. Diane ma manages to make it up to bed. She's shaken, but she's not frightened by what's happened anymore. She basically is just like, that was really freaky, but it didn't hurt me. So I'm okay. Mm -hmm. Her bed clothes go flying to the corner of the room and her room becomes ice cold. The mattress shoots up into the air like a magic carpet. She gets thrown to the ceiling and lands back down on the floor. And then the mattress is on top of her. This happens four times during the night, and each time she was unhurt. I'll be like, I just want to go to bed. Yeah, I'd be like, Why? bro, I've got to go just, to work. I'm so tired. Like, come on, man. Come on. I'm not even trying to hurt you right now. Just let me sleep. Yes. So at this point, news has started to circulate that stuff is going on at their house. And it starts to be covered by news outlets. And our amateur ghost hunters start to show up on their front lawn wanting to investigate. Ah, respectful. Oh, yes. They are literally asking to camp on their front lawn. And Jean is like, get the fuck out of here. Yeah. So... Jean, at one point, runs into Vic's sister, Renee Holden, who is self-proclaimed a little bit psychic. And she tells her what's been happening. And the next day, Renee comes over to see because she's like, well, that sounds really fucking interesting. Let's go. And Jean shows her the damage that Fred has done in a matter of minutes. The bedrooms have been ripped apart. The bedclothes lay in heaps. Drawers have been pulled open and the contents have been thrown about the room. Chairs have been overturned. Jean tells Renee, I literally cleaned this place up 30 minutes ago. And I wonder it's all how been... those like arguments went, you know, like growing up, it's like, go clean your room. And you're like, but I didn't. I literally uh, did. And this time it's like, I can't, Fred won't let me like. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like... So... <laughs> yeah. If only we had a poltergeist that we could have blamed for not cleaning our rooms. 
So Renee comes back after this happens and she comes back for on a Saturday for dinner. Sarah's there. Joe is out at the local pub. It turns out that Joe liked to drink a lot. So he was out at the pub a lot. Jean makes them some chicken sandwiches and Renee helps her. As they're carrying the chicken sandwiches into the lounge, the lights go out and then back on. And Jean remarks that it was odd because normally Fred makes them turn it back on. She was like, oh, he was nice today. He turned them back on for us. He's like, you've got your hands full. Exactly. Exactly. So they sit down in the lounge before they can start eating. The room gets super cold and the lights go out again. They start hearing a gentle tapping on the windows and eventually they managed to get the lights back on again. The room was complete chaos. And keep in mind that none of them really moved aside from Jean trying to find the light switch. The ornaments and cushions are now on the floor and the sandwiches had vanished. The He's a hungry boy. So wait for it. Eventually, Renee, whenever they're cleaning, finds the sandwiches hidden behind the TV, and one of them has an an abnormally large bite taken out of it. Like, somebody has massive teeth and is taking a bite out of this. Um, Mm -hmm. She asks Jean if she can keep it as a memento and evidence of what happened, which I would not keep a chicken sandwich. That's just me. I know. It was kind of great. I was going to say, in, like, today's age... Because I have weird Instagram. You could put it in red in resin. Yeah. I was gonna say I've seen so many things where they're like, "Here's an orange slice," and they cover it in resin, and you're like, "Cool." So I I could see doing that with it. Yeah. Because then you know it's not gonna go bad. But like back then. Yeah, back then. So she's like, "Look, it's moldy and crusty, but I swear the house ate it." And you're yeah. Like, Wait, what? Yeah. So. She didn't get to hold on for it to it for long because eventually in a couple days it disintegrated into crumbs. And that is odd in itself because a couple of days shouldn't do that. Well, and even at that, like, it's not going to disintegrate. It's going to mold. Right. Exactly. Like. Huh. Okay. Mm -hmm. So another time that Renee came over. It was coffee time. The lights went out and things began to fly in the room. It created a very loud racket. She felt like her hair was swarming with tiny creatures like ants. And that gave me the heaps. I was like, it made me itch my hair. <laughs> I was yeah, like, I'm like, I got a scratch right now. Like, <laughs> yes. Okay. So a cushion hits her in the face. And when Joe actually gets the lights back on, the whole room is torn apart. The children began to suffer from stomach ailments that got worse when the poltergeist appeared. And Renee suggested that the poltergeist was drawing energy from the solar plexus of the children and from the underground stream in the house. The solar plexus is just the area right below your sternum. I'm not 100% sure why solar plexus. I was going to say, I feel like Renee needs to leave. Yeah, she's a, it's a little like your woo-woo friend that, you know, comes and blesses your house when you move in kind of thing. Yeah, like, yeah. No, 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 like, get out, Yeah, sandwich-keeping freak. Yes. Renee, at this point, says, have you tried to communicate with it? And they're like, well, no. And so they decide that they're going to try to communicate with it. And as they begin to do so, a loud wind starts to rush down the stairs. Over the top of the banisters, a whole bunch of objects start to be thrown. And this is mattresses, bedding, boxes, anything that was movable upstairs starts to be thrown downstairs. 
<laughs> just thinking of like a teenage temper tantrum. Yeah. Like, I don't want to talk to you, mom. <laughs> Fuck you. You're not my real dad. Like, oh right. my God. <laughs> so the next one is Maud's, uh, or I'm sorry, Joe's sister Maud Pierce comes to check it out for herself because she is like, y'all are playing. She thinks that they should kill the children are playing a practical joke on Joe and Jean. And Jean is actually like very offended because she was like, Joe and Diane have, or not Joe, uh, Philip and Diane have literally been in the room with me when this has been happening. It can't be them. They are sitting there and the lights go out. The room gets cold again. And everybody's like, here it comes. And there's enough firelight from the fireplace to see that the fridge door swings open and then half a jug of milk floats out until it's positioned over Maud's head. It then tips over and dumps on top of her. You done fucked up, Maud. She blames the kids the second the lights come on. And Jean says it's impossible sure. for the kids to do that. We would have seen their shadows in the firelight. And she basically is like, I'm so sorry you're covered in milk now. Why don't you stay the night? We'll get your clothing cleaned up and stuff. And so Maud is like, fine and so she gives Jean her coat and her hat and one of her gloves the other glove she can't find so she's like oh, okay. I don't know where it is we'll find it eventually so they move into the lounge and the lights go off again there's a series of loud bangs and when the lights turn back on all of the chairs have been turned upside down and the mm -hmm. little electrical fire that they had in the lounge was pulled out of the fireplace and by electrical fire it's a little light bulb system that makes it look like it's fire okay the contents of the fridge have been strewn around the room and the kids are laughing their asses off because it's clear that this thing is just trying to show mar or mod that it's legit so yeah mod keeps angrily asking what's happening to the lights and gene says something keeps turning it off and mod insists someone keeps turning it off okay, so mod yeah so at this point, it's relatively quiet and they decide to go to bed. Jean is in her room when a reading lamp rises up into the air, moves out of the room and starts to dance with the little electrical thing that was in the fireplace. Okay. So she sure. said that you could see the light bulbs from the fireplace and this reading lamp just kind of twirling together on the landing. Two large hands appear one at the top of the door and the other at the bottom, now wearing the furred gloves that Maud had been wearing. So Maud <laughs> accuses I it. I love this ghost. Yes. <laughs> I. It's fucking sassy up to this point. Like uh, there's, yeah. there's a certain point where it changes, but up to the, it's very sassy. So yeah. Maud accuses it of being evil. And then the hands vanish. The gloves then reappear floating into the bedroom in an almost beckoning way as though it's saying, follow me. When Maude didn't move, the gloves balled up into a fist and shook threateningly at Maude. <laughs> Maude. <laughs> I love it. Yes. <coughs> Sorry, y'all. Whitney's still recovering from a sickness from what, two weeks ago? Three. 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 Um, Maud begins singing Onward Christian Shoulders as a shoulders. Onward Christian soldiers as a way to word it off, and the the hands begin to conduct in time with her singing. <laughs> the gloves vanish, and Maud says, You have the devil in this house. <laughs> I 
now want this to be my Halloween costume. Like, I'm going to get one of those, like, those suits, those body suits, a yes. black one, and then, like, some white gloves. And I'm just going to walk around and, like, do hand mind <laughs> things. And, like, Whoa. It's fantastic. Yeah. At this point, we, this is the first evidence that he's materializing and dematerializing matter. Because the gloves are literally appearing and, and vanishing. He realizes he has this power and starts to use it a lot. At one point, he Jean is downstairs and she's in the lounge just kind of chilling and an egg appears in front of her and it explodes. And when it explodes, it smells like a field of flowers. It's like a scent bomb. And she's like, I spent too much money on these eggs. And for those of us that went through the egg crisis, I think we're still going through the egg crisis. I think we're just going through a crisis. (laughs) I know, yeah. So she was like, no, you're not going to take my damn eggs. So she takes all the eggs and puts them in a wooden box and then sits on top of it. Another egg appears in front of her and explodes. And when she gets up and looks in the box, the egg is missing. So she's lost one egg from her Look here, you asshole. You can fuck (laughs) with Maude, but not me, okay? Yeah. I need them eggs. This continues until every single egg has been exploded. See, at that point, it's like, throw your hands in the air. You're like, fuck yeah. it. And you walk off. Take my damn eggs. Like, Enjoy your eggs. Yes. Whatever. It also seems that Fred enjoyed making a mess of the house because Jean was very tidy. So he just kind of liked getting a rise out of her because she liked cleaning. Honestly, that would drive me fucking crazy because I love having my house clean and I would be beside myself if a spirit decided it just. It. It reminds me of whenever I'm in your car and then I take my straw wrapper or receipt and just ball it up and chuck it in the back seat. Yep. And I look at you and I'm like, really? And you're like, yep, Yep. that happened. (laughs) I understand, Fred. I relate to this character. Yep. You won't hear it a little bit, but yep. (laughs) So we'll see. At this point, Vic is convinced they need an exorcism. So he goes to his own priest, Father Hudson, And Father Hudson is like, look, dude, I got to get permission from the bishop in order to do this. And honestly, the story before, honestly, an exorcism could make it worse. And so he says, you know, there's actually nothing stopping you from doing something. You could get some holy water and say some prayers. And Vic is like, cool, bet. What? I like that. He's like, I have to get permission and make sure that this is all like kosher. And then he was like, but you, an unseasoned uh, churchgoer, mm-hmm. I'm a, you know, that's a, probably all the wrong terms to put together, but <laughs> you, an amateur, go on ahead, take care of your own home. Yeah. Surely nothing will go wrong. So I'm guessing it's more of an don't ask, don't tell kind of thing where he's like, if you were to do this, I wouldn't say anything about it kind of thing. He does this. He goes mm-hmm. and he grabs some holy water. He sprinkles a little bit in each room. He says prayers as he's doing so, basically telling the entity that it needs to leave. Just as he finishes, there's a loud crash upstairs and water starts to trickle down the walls. And Gene takes this to mean that the poltergeist was, this was him being like, fuck your holy water. Like, I don't care about it. So I got my own bathtub yeah, of water. I got all the water in the world if I want it. So thank you so much for your bottle of Evian. Yes. So the poltergeist at this point feels like it was made to feel unwelcome and it's not happy about that. So Mm -hmm. it continues this ruckus until the wee hours of the morning. And (laughs) the focus is primarily on Diane. So 
while she was standing in the kitchen at the kitchen fireplace, she was combing her hair in the mirror and suddenly a drawer from a table shoots across the room and hits her in the small of the back. Right after that, a crucifix falls off the mantle and sticks to her back like a magnet. And Jean and and she try to get it off and they're not able to get it off. After that, an image of Jesus falls to the floor and then a cross on the wall falls to the floor. When they do manage to get the cross off of her, she is scratched between the shoulder blades with the mark of a cross. So they think that this is the thing being like, oh, you want to get religious about it? And doing that thing now. So this is where they start to see the first demonic kind of things happening. On Easter Sunday, they start to see gold inverted crosses painted all over the house. And Jean had some gold spray paint and she was like, okay. Yeah. She was like, I was like, what? what? Yeah. So Philip wanted to paint his bike gold. So they bought gold spray paint for him to do that. And she picks up the spray paint and tries to recreate the cross and she can't do it. She can't hold her hands steady enough to do it. They called the vicar and another clergyman and they're like, they come over and they lead, they look at it and they're like, you know what? Leave these until after the holiday because we busy. It's a holiday and we'll come back to deal with it. And they never did. Okay. Uh Uh-huh. So they were just like, what good are you guys? Get out of here. Like at this point I would stop going to them. You've already told me that I can do it on my own. Mm Mm-hmm. Like, I might as well go find Renee. Renee seemed to be more yeah. into helping than <laughs> exactly. anyone. So whatever. Exactly. So uh, Renee actually does come back at one point, And she is wearing a white mohair coat. And that goes missing while she's there. And it turns up in the coal shed underneath the coal. Whenever they pull it out, it is completely clean. There is not a black speck on it. So they're like, how? That's really weird. A man named Alan Williams comes by. I guess this, I think this was one of Joe's friends. He comes by and when he comes back out to his car, the windshield wipers are going. The car was off and locked. So there's no way that these could be going. He was so perplexed by this that he went and took it to a mechanic and they could find nothing wrong with the car. That same night, when he turned to look back at the house, he noticed that there was a very dim light surrounding the house. And one of the neighbors actually confirmed that they saw it too. Hmm. All right. The poltergeist vanishes from August 1968 to May 1969. And they noticed that when the poltergeist wasn't around, their electric bills were cut in half. I'm like, maybe I got a poltergeist. (laughs) Maybe. Couldn't just be that Texas heat, though. Yeah, no. Nah. Jean, at one point when she is cleaning out the flue, she has a shower of keys come down the chimney. There were 19 keys in all. And you'll find that as we go through this, keys are a favorite thing for the poltergeist to take. One of these keys was so old that it didn't even fit any of the locks that they had. It was like pre the house even being there kind of thing. So when the poltergeist comes back in May, 1969, he starts to show himself. So he just like went on a sabbatical. He was like, I gotta go. 
Yeah, he was I need just a like, break I'm from bored. you guys. Like, yeah, fuck you. I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go see the world or something. Yeah. Chances are, so it turns out that the poltergeist actually doesn't isn't limited to just their house. He actually ventures between several of the houses to the point that a future owner, one of the people in the neighborhood, comes to him and is like, "Hey, can you get that thing under control? Like he can control where the poltergeist goes." <laughs> and the guy was sure. like, "Sure, I'll one do that." Second. So. I like and I would be like, I would be like, hey, I don't know where you are, but can you go to Susan's house? Exactly. Like, Fuck that bitch. Exactly. Yeah. So the first time he shows himself is to Gene and Joe and it's in the they're in bed. The door opens and they see a dim figure in the hallway. It's very tall. It has a hood over its head. And the second they turn the light on, it vanishes. The second time was May Mountain, who is their next door neighbor. She was having issues with it was making drumming noises on the side of her wall. She was standing in her kitchen and she felt somebody behind her. And when she turned, she found a tall figure dressed in a black monk's habit or, you know, robe and had a cowl over his head. She couldn't see the face. She didn't feel any fear. She was just very curious. And then it vanished. Hmm. So Fred also begins to make some weird new noises at one point, he starts to make cow and chicken noises, like barnyard animal noises, to the point that they thought that local cattle and chickens had managed to break into the house and go upstairs. So they were up there trying to figure out where the cows and chickens were, and it was just Fred making cow and chicken noises. Okay. Mm-hmm. Now, so the show, Cow and Chicken, isn't the devil named Fred? Oh, I think it, it is. Frank? He is. No, I think it's Fred. I thought I they just called Fred. him the red guy. I think it's the red guy, but then I think at some point they call him Fred. Maybe. We'll have to look that up. Because you said cow and chicken, and I was like, mom had a chicken. Mom, mom had, had a cow. cow. <laughs> but then I was like, wait, what's the red dude's name? Yeah. I don't know. We'll have to look. Huh. So... On top of that, he has also started making stertorous, oh God, stertorious, stertorous? Noisy and labored breathing is what that word means. Okay. I can't fucking say it. I was like, are you having a strong? I, I, Paul the Bondulance. (laughs) The Bondulance. Renee Holden is the first person to really see the monk in very close quarters. She and Jean had been had been invited to a spiritualist church to talk about all of the experiences that they've been going through. The church sends a car and a driver. They play the tapes for them of the recordings that they've gotten. And when they come back, they offer to have the driver in for tea because it was a little bit of a long drive. So they were like, you know, you drove us. You should come have some tea. And so he's like. Yeah, I heard all the shit that's going on in your house. I'm really not too thrilled about the prospect of coming in and seeing what's going on. So he comes in anyway. Renee was on her way to sit down and the lights go out and the man is terrified. So she puts her hand on his shoulder and kind of tells him, you know, it'll be okay. But whenever she does that, she feels a hand on the back of her hand, like something's resting on top of her hand. And she glances under her outstretched arm and there are long, there's a long black garment that stops about a couple inches before the floor. And then there's black shoes. When the lights turn back on, there's nothing there. He's like, yes, yes, it will be okay. It will be okay. 
So at this point, the haunting reaches its climax. Mm-hmm. Diane goes to the kitchen to make coffee and the lights go out. When the lights go out, Diane starts screaming and Jean goes to try to find her and they find she, that she's being dragged up the, sca- the stairs by her cardigan. Um, oh. Philip and Jean try to pull her down, but they can't. And every time they're trying, they're sent tumbling back down the stairs. It finally releases her. Cardigan, take it off. Well, so I think that they meant like they could see on her cardigan where it was pulling her, but it was actually pulling like around her neck. Uh, okay. Yeah. Philip at one point tries to touch the the hand that's actually pulling Diane, and that's when it releases her. She gets a big old mug of brandy to try to calm her down, and whenever yeah. they look closer, she has red finger marks on her throat. Mm. Jean comes down one morning. She finds the hall carpet is soaked with water, and there are massive footprints on the floor, like inhumanly large footprints. At one point, Phil and Diane are watching TV in the lounge and Philip sees a shape in the front frosted glass. Diane sees it too. Philip gets up to go look. And when he opens the door, the figure of the monk sinks into the floor. Mm. They started to uh, hang garlic in the house at the suggestion of one of their ghost hunting neighbors. And it works. Fred disappears. And they don't hear anything from him for the next 10 years. Wow. So, that's some strong garlic. Yep. Tom Cuniff, he has an interest in history. He hears about this poltergeist and he starts to wonder if it had any connection with the Priory before. Because they're describing it being in a monk's robe and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Jean said that their neighbor found a book in the local library that mentioned a monk had been hanged for killing and raping a young girl. And he notes that the gallows had been on top of the hill. Their house once stood on the side of an old bridge called Priest's Bridge. And he comes to the conclusion that this monk had been found guilty of rape and murder. And he had strangled the girl. He was executed for the the crime on the location of the hanging. So where he was hung. And now he haunts that spot. And he believes that the attack on Diane was sexual in nature. I'm not feeling that. I don't get anything I mean, sexual about anything that's gone on here. So You've already said that, like, you don't know where this whole monk theory came from yep. anyways. So, like, I feel like this guy is just, like, really he's just reaching everything out of proportion. Like, yeah. he's just like, whoa. Yes. And so there was a monastery here. Like, <laughs> fuck off. Right. And so the author turned like the author of the book, Colin Wilson, he looks into this quite a bit more. And he says that the search turned up that monks were in a great deal of litigation and had quite a bit of violence. So there were several, you know, things going against them. Mm-hmm. They had warlike view- virtues as opposed to contemplative virtues. There was no mention of a rape or murder in anything that he could find. And it's possible that the neighbor actually read the story of a vicar called George Beaumont that during the Civil War was accused of carrying on correspondence with the Royalists and hanged for his crimes. So he's wondering if maybe the story just got kind of twisted through like kind of the telephone method where you're telling the story over and over again and it gets warped. Yeah, I feel like that one makes more sense. Yeah. I I don't think it makes sense as far as like why he would be haunting or the activities that he's been doing like that doesn't make sense but okay 
Right. So they think that this whole monk thing is because the poltergeist likes to mimic what it hears. It slashed the pictures after Maud mentioned that poltergeist slash pictures. It the grand there was a grandmother clock in the house that was damaged after someone mentioned that they were surprised it was still intact. A Upside down crosses. Clock. Yeah, it's smaller than a grandfather clock. Oh, okay, I was like, I've only find. ever heard of a grandfather clock. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So the upside down crosses and crucifixes and all that stuff was after Vic tried to exercise the home. So they think that because it was mentioned that a monk, you know, could be who this is, it kind of took on that persona. So then the question became, why 30 East Drive? Why does this get the brunt of this haunting? And there's several things. There's the stream that's under the house. We know that water is a great conductor of electricity. And of course, it's said to record energies in the water memory theory. We all know how I feel about that. There was a lot of tension in the home, specifically between Joe and Philip. They had a tense relationship because Joe was a sports guy and Philip liked books and music. And he was very kind of, they were at each other's throats a lot about what a man was. In okay. addition, Philip was hitting puberty and Diane was hitting puberty. So it's likely that this poltergeist is an elemental that found the Pritchers and the Ferrars were just good energy for the taking. Yeah. So the Doncaster research group thinks that Philip is the culprit. They think that he is faking this whole thing. The recordings of the EVPs and things that they've gotten, they say can be faked. And on top of this, there was a dust free spot in the attic where a loudspeaker easily could have been put that somebody could play thumping noises and that kind of thing. The author mm-hmm. of the book, Colin thinks that's completely absurd. So he believes that okay. The ground itself is haunted, that the early haunting was triggered by Philip and his tensions with his father. This was written before the Ferrars were really known about. And Diane, they believe, was mediumistic to a point because she had been seeing figures her entire life. So Mm. they think that because she was open, she was feeding the entity unwittingly and hadn't learned to close herself down. And that's why she got the brunt of the attacks because she was mediumistic and more susceptible to its energy. Mm -hmm. And on that, I am going to end part one. Wow. Yeah. Okay. So that's the next part. We're going to talk about what happened after the hauntings. And there's a lot. Okay. What happened okay. after the famous hauntings? The famous hauntings. Yes. It, is it still a very petty ghost? Oh, yes. Okay. It's petty as fuck. It's demonic as fuck, I, but it's petty as fuck, too. <laughs> I greatly enjoy the pettiness. And uh-huh. I, to me, I feel like maybe that means that it's actually not as demonic as people would think. I think just that because it's... he's just like, I want to fuck around. I think because of the power of suggestion and it seems to like that. People have given it a demonic persona. Yes. Yeah. I could see that. Yeah. Yeah. And okay. just like I've always said, the energy you bring into an investigation is the energy you get out of it. Yeah. Yeah. But we're going to see a lot of evidence next time for okay. the different hauntings going on. Alrighty. So I hope oh, very good. y'all enjoyed part one of the Black Monk House and... If you have any, if you've been to the Black Monk House and have spooky stories, please reach out to me and let me know. And yeah, you can do that on 
Instagram, theghostsisterstx.com, or Gmail, theghostsisterstx at gmail.com, or just theghostsisters at anywhere else that we have social media. Matter of fact, just go outside and just like, hey, ghost stars. <laughs> it's and called manifesting. Say, Look it up. <laughs> Look it up. Yeah. I love that lady. Yeah, she's great. So, yes. So, well. It sounds like we will spook you later, bitches. Spook you later, bitches. Goodbye. Goodbye. Goodbye.